there's more than one way to grow a D2C brand, right? Find what works for you. And we're an example of, you know, when most other D2C brands have been growing on the backs of paid social and Instagram and Facebook, we were growing on the back of Google and, and Microsoft and email. I think of email channels another good example, right? A lot of people would say, oh, that's not best practice. Find what works for your brand, test everything. Assume everything can be broken and, and you know, build it back up as you go. You will find what works for you if you take a scientific approach to it. You just make, make no assumptions and test everything. What is up, Modern Commerce listeners? I want to show you an amazing app we've been using called Triple Whale. You can check it out. Try triplewhale.com. It has all of the business health metrics and growth metrics you could possibly need all in one place, right? So everybody can get on the same page. This has revolutionized our ability to help grow brands and collaborate with brands. Everyone can get on the same page on the most important metrics. So if you're a media buyer, you can come into this and you can just use this little pin icon right here. And you can pin to the top the most important stuff to you. So if I'm a media buyer, I might have ROAS, I might, might have ad spend, I might have new customer ROAS, right? But if I'm an owner, maybe those things aren't as important to me. Maybe I just want, you know, net profit, show me the net profit, show me the sales, right? Show me the number of orders. Um, so everyone on the team can get in line, get, you know, on the same page of what the most important growth metrics are, because it's different for every brand. Um, so grab Triple Whale at trytriplewhale.com. Use it. I promise you it will make your growth path far more clear. And uh, enjoy this episode of Modern Commerce. Welcome back, Modern Commerce. You're here again with Casey and John, and we've got a guest with us today. We'll get to that in just a second. John's going to be handling a little bit more of the interview today. He's kind of our interviewer uh, extraordinaire, as I should say. And I'm gonna be more here just to sprinkle in some seasoning. That's kind of my role on this show. So uh, without further ado, John, let's get it started, man. Let's do it. Yeah, you didn't ask me how I was doing, which is our tradition, but that's okay. I'm doing well. I'm sorry um, about that. But that, that's, you know, that's all right. So with us today, we have president of Kuru Footwear, a uh, athletic footwear brand. You also do like uh, medical, not medical footwear, but footwear that helps people with uh, plantar fasciitis and things like that. Um, D2C only or retail as well? D2C only today. Yeah. D2C only brand that has had really impressive growth, even in some troubling e-commerce times lately. Uh, President of Kuru Footwear, Sean McGinnis. Sean, thank you for being here today appreciate it um why don't you give us all maybe just a little bit of background on kuru and on you yeah, yeah sure thanks for having me i'm really uh, appreciative of the opportunity to speak with you guys today so kuru footwear has been in business since 2008. we were founded on the back of a business plan contest win that occurred actually in 2006 so our ceo and founder brett rasmussen won the grand prize at the university of utah's forty thousand dollar bounty so he took that money and did a bunch of research. He knew he wanted to own a shoe brand. Um, he just wanted to own a shoe brand since he was a teenager, believe it or not. So this is kind of a dream come true for an entrepreneur in the United States here in Utah. Uh, we're based in Salt Lake City. Um, Brett went off and did a bunch of research and learned how to make shoes for about two years and then launched Kuru in the middle of 2008 in the financial crisis. Um, the original business plan was more traditional wholesale. So he had gone to outdoor retailer and gotten a bunch of orders and commitments from traditional retailers. And as uh, the initial batch, the manufacturing uh, batch of shoes were on the water over from Asia, Lehman Brothers declared bankruptcy in the 2008 financial crisis and all the retailers started pulling their orders. 
right? So here's this young guy, this entrepreneur who's looking at this mountain of uh, shoes that kind of represents every dollar he'd ever saved or raised. He's like, well, what am I going to do now? And he just pivoted into a D2C model, wrote a, a website back in the day. And um, here we are 13, 14 years later, uh, growing really rapidly and profitably and fully bootstrapped at this point in time. So yeah. um, Kuru is a, a great success story and we hope to continue to get that growth in the years to come. So my role at Kuru, I, I run the day-to-day. -day. I'm the president of the company. I, I joined the firm about two and a half years ago as head of growth. Uh, moved into a CMO role for most of 2021 and was promoted to the president role in January 2022 here. So I have a very non-traditional background. I have an acting degree, a law degree. I spent 10, 15 years in direct sales selling to law firms. And one of the things that I sold was marketing services and, and websites. So I kind of slid into the marketing, the digital marketing world a little bit sideways, kind of power sliding in. Um, but that was a long time ago. It was a whole lifetime ago. I'm kind of on my third or fourth career at this point. Um, the old man in the, in the building and uh, just enjoying every day. These youngsters keeping me busy, you know? That's, that's amazing. You just said you had an act. So your bachelor's is in acting and then you got a JD. Yeah, correct. Wow. That's, that, that's amazing. Uh, <laughs> were, you, were you ever like a practicing lawyer? I worked for four different law firms. Uh, I went to night school and so I clerked um, officially, but I never, I did pass the bar in Pennsylvania uh, in 1994, but I never formally practiced. I was full-time 40 hours a week as a law clerk at four different law firms, all of which had four different really specialty practice areas. I worked for personal injury firms. I worked for defense firms yeah. all over the board. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I'm talking to the guy from Catch Me If You Can right now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't look nearly as good in an aviator suit. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, cool. So, yeah, thank you for the background on on Kuru. So, this is a, this is an interesting one. So, I teased this a little bit on Twitter this week. We uh, we're we're, we're kind of Twitter Twitter followers. I don't know if the Twitter word for that. Yeah, we follow each other on Twitter. I teased this on Twitter earlier this week. Um, we all kind of know that over the last uh, couple of years, e-commerce has been really strange, honestly. I, I, like, I wouldn't really describe it any other way because it was sort of on this like relatively similar trend from, I would say, 2015 when I got into it um, all the way through 2019, right? Where it was like, yeah, you know, Facebook was just like this great place to acquire. And you started being able to use influencers and um, there was this arbitrage opportunity and, and it got a little bit harder and a little bit harder every year. Um, and, uh, there were some brands that like really, you know, just timing was everything for them. You know, some that sure. come to mind that are the DTC darlings and now, yeah. you know, nothing against them, but like MVMT watches, some of these where it's, you know, they got in at a time where it was like, we could acquire it profitably at really, really high scale. Sure. Um, and then 2020 hits and we see this like reversal of the trend of things getting harder and all of a sudden things were like really easy again and we're scaling again and then 2021 hits and it was like not only did we go back to the trend but we went back to the trend after after projections from 2020 numbers and this worry around inventory where in 2020 we couldn't get we could keep selling out couldn't get yeah. inventory right like we're just broad strokes e-commerce here sure. and we keep selling out, we can't get inventory. And so now we're over ordering inventory, 2021, things get harder again or go back to the trajectory they were really on before, plus we get iOS 14. And so, Bakuru has not, so so a lot of e-commerce brands over the last few years would say, let's say, you know, had big growth 2015, 16, 17, gets harder. 
18, 19, another spike in 2020, and then now in 2021, maybe they're still growing, maybe they're okay, but their EBITDAs don't look as good because they've got these big POs placed. Um, 2022, they may be starting to recover. Kuru, it hasn't looked like that. Your guys' EBITDA has actually improved, and you guys have seen really good growth over the last few years, right? And I, you guys build them silent. You guys build a little more silently, which I love, right? So I know we don't know your actual numbers, but that's more or less the trend that you've seen. Yeah. And I think the big question, right, like that everyone had was like, how or what? Like, what was the what was the key to this? So I want to get your view on it. And I might I might poke at it a little bit and yeah. pick at it a little bit. So yeah, please do. So yeah. the the I mean, I'll give you the narrative that I'm familiar with. And, and I think we followed that trend to a degree as well. So the business was growing really, really rapidly um, from 2008 through about 2017. At uh, the end of 2017, the business replatformed from our old Magento 1 website to a Magento 2 website. And when they made that change, they changed everything about the business. They changed the code base. They changed the front end look and feel and design. They changed the messaging. They left behind, frankly, a lot of the foot pain messaging and kind of pivoted uh, some of the narrative in inside the business at that time was, hey, we've tapped out of the foot pain customer and we need to kind of become a little bit more of a lifestyle brand and uh, you know focus on the promise of what we're able to deliver for you, which is returning to normal. And you, you can actually go out and walk the dog and you can do all these, you know, these fun things. Uh, they changed the hosting provider. They changed the development agency. <laughs> they left behind 300 pages of content that were performing on SEO, but were oriented around foot pain concepts. So there was a lot of kind of turmoil. Um, 2018, um, the business kind of repeated 2017's revenue number, but they had performed a little bit worse in SEO. So they had to spend more in a lot of the paid channels to kind of maintain that level. So EBITDA was compressed a fair amount and, uh, struggling to understand what was happening and looking for a growth opportunity. This, uh, the, the business was kind of given over to a local full service digital agency in 20, uh, end of 2018 and 2019 was not a good year. Um, revenue was down. Um, margin was negative, like it was not a good year. So I was brought in at the end of 2019, uh, right around Halloween, um, took some time to build some dashboards and really understand, at least from my perspective, to the degree that I could as quickly as I could, like what was working, what wasn't working, what was happening in the business, what were the trends, um, tried to work with the agency to find growth. And when we couldn't get there, I made the decision to pull the plug in the agency and to start building my team in-house. Um, so I hired a, a, a former coworker of mine from a prior life to rebuild our paid search account from the ground up. I hired two full-time employees to own paid search and paid social. And we went back on this growth trend and, and growth really started to take back off. We focused on profit initially for the first couple of three months. And then the growth really kind of kicked in, call it like April, May of 2020. Yeah. Um, caught a, you caught a good time there too. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, for sure. We had a lot of tailwinds. You, uh, you hit it right on the, the nail right on the head, right? What we saw at that time was this, this general trend as, uh, you know, retail as a or e-commerce as a percentage of total retail was on this kind of nice uh, glide path. And when COVID hit in March in 2020, that jumped up, you know, two, three years worth of it. And 2021 was another kind of a tailwind for various pierces. And now at this point, we've gotten back on trend, right? So we've, there's a huge blip as a percentage It peaked at like 19, 20%. Now we're back down to wherever it kind of would have been, but for that two-year pop from a COVID perspective. So tailwinds definitely COVID related helped us um, in our, in our growth. And we were, um, 
coincidentally in a position to be able to benefit from that from an inventory perspective because we were over inventory because of the poor performance in 19 right so what we what we experienced was a pretty dramatic acceleration in april may um, of 2020 and we were then under inventoried in june july and august um, and you know kept that growth going as we kind of headed into um, Q3, Q4 of 2020, because a lot of the rebuild process that we had done started to really take root, right? Like the paid search account was fully rebuilt by May or June. And by September, suddenly we were able to match up the performance of that, cha that channel with the inventory capability. And, you know, things just really took off year over year from that period forward. And then as we moved into 2021, you know, it's easy to forget this because March and April were so good for, for most people, but January we had small um, stimulus checks in most consumers' pockets, right? We got $600 checks in December and January. Mm. That helped. So January was the best month in company history in 2021. Okay. February, we, we, we retrenched a little bit. Most people probably forget this, but there was that huge weather event in Texas where people couldn't even, power was out for you know a week and a half or whatever it was. So we were a little bit negatively affected in February. My forecast in, in March was here and we beat it by over 50%. So March and April, when those $1,200 checks hit from this federal stimulus package, like everybody and their brother, the intent went off, went through the roof. Yep. You know, we're repeating those conversion rates now in March and April of this year, but the demand is definitely down. Volume, yeah. 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 <clears throat> so, so 21 be became another interesting time period because in the summer in 21, we repeated that in, uh, on being under inventory because we couldn't keep up. Mm. You just, it was impossible to keep up. We we bought to a level that made sense to us. And all of a sudden these, these checks start hitting people's, you know, uh, bank accounts. And it was almost impossible to keep up from an inventory perspective. And then all the other things we've been dealing with from a logistics and a supply chain and freight and, you know, a hundred yeah. ships sitting off the coast of California, it's just been a nightmare, right? Like trying to forecast what used to take us 35 days to get from our factory partners in Asia to our um, distribution center in Kentucky now takes 105 days ish. Like, and it's even that is like, well, we're not really sure, you know, yeah. uh, it's plus or minus two, three weeks and things that we ordered that, that left the factory in, very early February this year, which would normally have been here. We're like, we're just now starting to get some of that product in inventory. So um, talk to me about summer of 21. I know you were under, under inventoried because like now that you say it, it's so, it, we have such recency bias in this industry. Yeah. You know what I mean? Cause like now that you say it, I'm like, oh yeah, I do remember that. Like the beginning of 21 was pretty good. Yeah. Um, but 21 for a lot of people felt like really bad. Uh, do you think that almost being under what, what was what did your performance look like because I, I almost wonder if being under inventory was a little bit of a blessing for you through like may june july august right where a lot of people were like they bought really heavily yeah. and um because they like basically had all these inventory issues for the last six months and then they were like they were in trouble trying to cover those po's in that <clears throat> So do you think that was it or was your performance still really strong in that time period? Because that's what I want to get into is like, you know, how has how have you preserved performance through essentially when iOS 14 really started affecting us really badly in June? Because um, it kicked in April, but it really started hurting us in June. Have you guys maintained that performance? Yeah, so um, we have. And the reason that we have is because, frankly, um, paid social was a relatively small percentage of our spend and our... Ah and our order volume. Um, 
we, so when I came in the business, um, I assessed kind of what was happening and, and made a bunch of decisions based on just last click attribution, um, plus some additional um, factor. You know, what we do is we had been utilizing um, up until recently, the, the methodology that we used basically was to go into Google Analytics and, and uh, calculate last click, order volume and revenue. And then we would mark that up. So in the, in the um, e-com section in, in Google Analytics, you can go do, and you can go check um, different models, right? So we would use the position-based model, which take, which gives 40% um, credit to the first click and 40% to the last, and then spreads the rest in between all the interactions it can measure between those two bookends. Mm -hmm. So we would mark up the revenue to account for that position-based difference. And then we would make some decisions based on that. So that was like the best that, that we could do in the absence of a true multi-touch attribution model. So we used that to make decisions on things that we knew were top of funnel, like paid social or like our non-branded paid search uh, or you know, shopping campaigns and things of that nature. Um, <clears throat> so we managed the business to kind of a blended MER which is um, uh, media spend over net revenue. So we get our gross revenue numbers. We assume a similar um, return rate across every channel. And we say, look, we want to, we want to manage that business to X percent, right? We, instead of a ROAS, I look at it, we prefer to look at it as a percentage. So it's just um, spend over revenue. Right. And, and the way that I kind of look at it is the, that MER number is like the sweet music that's coming out of the speakers. And we've, I'm staring at an equalizer and some of those equalizers are really cheap, branded paid search or SEO or email is effectively free because we're not spending money in media. And some of those channels are a little more expensive, right? So maybe I'm willing to spend to pay 45 cents on the dollar or a 60% ad ratio for a certain channel, as long as I'm getting my output in the speakers, which is that blended ratio that makes sense for us because it's built around our entire sort of PL, right? Right. <clears throat> that has to do with stuff like gross margin and media spend and headcount and all of that stuff, right? So, yeah. Go ahead. That that model. No, I, I was just gonna say that model. I mean, that's how we manage all of our brands, and that's sure. uh, that is like just the best way to look at it. And I love that you're saying like, okay, we're we're trying to wait, you know, like a, a, a weighted model uh, and in uh, a last click model, right? Like you're not looking at attribution in this like really kind of linear or or like binary sort of way, like a lot of people want to, like a lot of owners head growth heads especially owners i think founders want to say like okay i did 20k in sales today where did that come from right yes and it's like it's just that, that's a really hard way to look at it and, and not the best way to look at it honestly um because because there's there's split credit here um and it, and it always but yeah the the blended mer like as the true north star is great because then it also allows you channel expansion right like you can say hey look if we want to test out TikTok, like you know, we have 10K a month we can spend on TikTok and, and our MER should still be fine. And we can spend that 10K for three, four months and try and um, figure out the channel, right? Whereas like, if you need returns right away on some kind of last click model, it's just, it's really hard to crack anything new and, and become omni-channel. Well, let's take, let's take, let's go back to Facebook as an example, right? So the way I think about Facebook is the, the platform itself is trying to take credit for every sale that it can. Mm -hmm. So that's the ceiling of potential contribution, right? Google Analytics last click is the floor of potential country. We know it's driving at a minimum that, and the truth is probably somewhere in the middle, right? And the question is like, how do we get even fractionally more accurate at estimating what the relative contribution there is? And, and, and how do we get some level of confidence that what we're measuring is true incrementality to the business? Like those are the things that I kind of care about. And so when we looked at it through that lens, um, in that, with those limited tools that were available to us, 
um, it Facebook was five to ten percent of our spend. Yeah. Um, and so my hypothesis all this time until we got our multi-touch attribution solution. So there's kind of a before and after we get Rockerbox installed, right? Yeah. But up until we get that to that moment, my strong hypothesis of why it felt like that solution, that channel was a, a lower piece of the mix for our brand relative to others. Because as you know, yeah. B2C, right? Like generally speaking, people are spending, they can't spend fast enough in Facebook because the, the narrative is that's a major driver of our revenue. And we need to be there in a way that's really holistic and ever present and et cetera. And, and my point of view up until that point, it was just a guess, it was a wet finger, was that that uh, in some ways we represent what I'll call a need brand instead of a want yeah. brand, right? Like um, the, the example I've used a hundred times is like, when I think of the things that I have bought off an Instagram ad, they're, they're like cheap, low risk, like $15 to $25 items. Like I can afford that. And if it shows up and I hate it, it's no big deal, mm -hmm. right? So that's that's one type of product and one type of brand that probably excels in that top of funnel. It's an awareness play, right? It's like, oh, it's an impulse buy. Yeah. Um, for $150 pair of sneakers that are promising to actually take your foot pain away and allow you to go reclaim what feels like a normal life to you. And, and, and like, there's probably a healthy dose of skepticism there. <laughs> of like, are you like, is this is a big expense? This is really something I genuinely need so I can go to work, so I can go and play with my kids, so I can walk the dog, so I can go back to reclaiming what feels normal to my life, whether that's going on, you know, walks around the block or going for a hike up in the trail in the mountains. Like, I'm going to do a lot of research that's going to make sure that I'm making the right choice, right? And what, what that set of behaviors tends to lead to is lots of searches on Google and lots of clicking around and reading and and so our spend hat was skewed very heavily in the Google and Microsoft space mm. and identifying these people that were self-identifying by raising their hands, by putting a bunch of words in the magic box on Google. Right? right. And we wanted to be present there both organically as well as in the paid environment um, and have multiple bites at the apple. So, yeah. you know, today, if you run a search for shoes for plantar fasciitis, we're listed in the Forbes article. That's the number one search result for that term. And our goal is to get our pages, you know, back to where they used to be six months ago in the number two position as well. Right. So we're constantly, and we're buying a paid ad and right. we're showing up for shopping. So if we're showing up four five, six, seven times, and we're ever present when people are searching for those types of words, or those phrases or those queries and those ideas and those concepts, we're going to have a much better chance at actually winning that sale. Right. So you, you guys, instead of going with a top of funnel strategy on interrupted channels like Facebook, um, which, you know, now, now it has, a it, now it seems to have a challenger in TikTok, but has been the dominant yep. force of interruptive space in DTC for a while now. Um, you guys chose to instead say like, how can we expand our, our like Google paid SEM strategy? Yep to top of funnel, right? So to, to the research phase and the awareness phase, which is- we grew, we grew the business overall by being dominant at demand capture. Yeah, yeah. Like that's See, the way I'll phrase it is, and we need to learn how to become better at demand gen and, and figure out like, is that a place where we can play given yeah. our price point, given our customer base, given the job to be done that we're satisfying for our customers? Like, where does that live, you know? And how do we go get, how do we play in that space? Yeah, see, that's so funny because I, I am, I'm an interruptive guy. Like I'm, that's my, like, not like in, in life. Well, I kind of am in life actually, but, uh, 
Like that's my, I, I thrive on interruptive advertising, right? And that's like where my headspace goes, where it's like, you guys have really went with this demand capture um, strategy. But I will say this, that probably that reflects, you know, like you said, so much of the DTC world is probably a lot more like me. Mm -hmm. um, and, and they've struggled during this, like iOS 14 hurt Facebook really bad. Like let's yeah. just not sugarcoat it and say that it hurt Facebook really, really bad. And so uh, brands where the, a lot of the media mix was there on, mm -hmm. you know, on meta properties, it was like significant from June, you know, all the way through Q4. Q4 is always fine, right? Like you, you kind of always recover some in Q4, but mm, so a lot of brands, not, not as much as they have in past years, right? And it's just starting to get better now that more brands are using these MTA solutions like Rockerbox or Heart yeah. North Beam, um, Triple Whale, yep. the show. North Beam, <laughs> yep. So, and, and, the, and the beautiful thing with Rockerbox now is we have better data. So I, I'm no longer guessing about what the row, what the actual sort of contributory ROAS of that channel looks like. Yeah. And so it is performing pretty well for us and there's opportunity for us to push and to learn. And uh, it's not, you know, we're not crushing it, but it definitely, um, it, it sort of, it, it sort of uh, flashes red and says, hey, pay attention to me over here. Yeah. Here's an opportunity you need to go test a little bit more aggressively. And so that's definitely part of the, part of the, part of the plan for us. Yeah, especially for the world of demand gen, right? Like if mm -hmm. it can return, maybe not as well, mm -hmm. but like generate, like, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty big deal. Um, I want to move on to like one other thing and then I, you know, we can, we, so, so I'm going to actually step backwards to, uh, you let go of the agency, um, which I'm sure, you know, we're agency guys, you know, sure. um, and this is something we talk about a lot. We actually had whole episodes about like, hey, agency in-house, um, you know, how do you do that? Yeah, there you go, Casey represent. Um, <laughs> so yeah, agency in-house, how do we, you know, how do we think about this? And like, you know, I think we have a little different approach than a lot of agency people who are like, agency always. We're like, no, no, there's a time and a place, you know. Sure. Um, do you, I mean, do you attribute, because you had some tailwinds when your in-house team took over and had success. Do you think, like what, you know, what do you think if you're trying to separate the out the factor of like bringing it in house helped, you know, this much and here's why, like, what do you, yeah, like I'm interested in your thoughts there. So I, um, what I believe is that there is a time and a place for agency and it, it, a lot of that, in my opinion, is driven by the size of the business. Mm -hmm. um, there comes a point in time where, um, the, the question that I start asking is, can I do the same thing in-house for less money? Like that's, it just becomes a very sort of simple ROI business driven decision. And the, honestly, the best example, I've told this story probably dozens and dozens of times, but, um, the very first job that I ever had where I was responsible for any paid channel at all, I was at a really big retailer. Um, like we were at the time, I think overall, the whole business was the fifth largest retailer, um, in, uh, in internet retailer list. Right. So oh, okay. we were huge and my little, to, my little, yeah, it was, well, I was at Sears, oh, okay. um, and my little rounding error of a business <clears throat> did, um, nine figures and we did healthy eight figures in profit, um, while the rest of Sears was losing $3 billion a year. Uh -huh. um, and I walked into a, a business that was working with one of the top right Gartner Magic Quadrant paid search agencies in the country. And uh, I sat down and talked with uh, the P&L owner and I expressed a little bit of concern with him. I'm like, hey, man, we're spending eight figures 
in a channel that we have no real expertise in-house. Like, does that concern you at all? He says, yeah, um, it's a little bit of a concern. Why don't you go ahead and put a business case together and we'll see what we decide, right? So I asked that agency to give me a time study. Like you, we're, we're spending good money with you guys. I want to know what you're doing for that. What, what is the value you're driving into my, my business for that, for that spend? Um, after dragging their feet as any good, you know, a big agency like theirs would, I finally get back a spreadsheet. It's like, here's the four roles that are attached to your account. And here's the six different activities that they do. And, you know, blah, blah, blah. It all adds up to about 45 hours a week worth of work on my account. <clears throat> And of those 45 hours a week, 26 hours were devoted to meetings and reporting. So I'm getting 19 hours a week actually trying to move the needle on my performance, right? Um, and for that, so that's one FTE, let's call it. It's, one, it's the equivalent of one person. We were paying almost $400,000 a year for that. Yeah. And so it, at that point, it became a decision or a discussion and debate internally of like, for half of that spend, I can go hire two full-time people. I'll get 80 hours a week worth of work. And I control meetings and reporting of how much time they're spending devoted to those things. So like, is that a business case we wanted to bite off and try? And we did. And the very first thing that the new person that I hired into that role did was she deleted 900,000 keywords out of the account that were not productive. So they were either driving clicks and no sales or not even driving clicks. They were just cluttering up the account. The account and I, you know, as a, as a generalist business guy, I got to say, when I walked into that business, I was like, my paid search account is massive. We have 1.2 million keywords in this account. Oh, like, this is so cool. We're spending tons of money. This is great. I'm over yeah. I got big budgets, baby. I'm, I'm, I'm doing my thing. And we hired two people and we rebuilt that well, remaining 300,000 keywords from the ground up with a brand new structure and drove 40% more revenue into the channel year over year. Yeah, yeah. So, so like the, the, those, that's my experience through my lens. If I look at that and say, hey, the, you know, at a really big business, I can afford to in-house that, right? Yeah. And, but for a small business coming up, you have no choice. You have to go to an expert who does this because it's probably a founder and two or three other people running this. And they don't have anywhere near the expertise that a firm like yours does or a firm like the one that I was using at the time did, right? And so it, it, the counter argument from my peers at the time was it's never the agency's fault, you're mismanaging them, mm. which is a fair counterpoint of like, well, hey, was I really giving them the chance and working closely with them and asking the tough questions and holding them accountable and all those other things? Mm. Fair, you know, I think there's a, it's a, there is a ton of value to be extracted. And when you find a good agency, hang on for dear life. Like that's my advice to everyone who's in this space. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, and, um... Another thing he pointed out there was like uh, that I'll, I'll call out for uh, brands is um, I think that, you know, maybe if you're using an agency to, to, to provide something that you don't really want to cover in-house or uh, whatever. So, so there's some variability, right? So when you're a smaller business, uh, an agency allows you to absorb the variability where you go hire somebody for a hundred thousand dollars a year. And then they have like, you know, there's a summertime downturn in their performance yep. on that channel. Now you're feeling like you can't even afford that person anymore. And you got like fire, like a real person, not yep. 
not like an agency, you know, um, whereas an agency, uh, you know, a lot of times you can kind of restructure fees during down periods or, uh, you know, or just kind of like you have lower. There's greater fees. flexibility there. Yeah, right. for sure. And I, I keep coming back to like, and, and in an area that's so new or so different and you're experimenting and trying to learn, agencies provide incredible value there, right? Yeah. So like the, the current debate we're having is like, how do we bring in an agency to help us with creative? Like right. that's a, like there's, that's that's hard to replicate and, uh, with bodies inside of the business, especially if you don't really understand what you want the brand to be yet. And that's we're kind of rebooting the brand at this point. And so, like we've got a we've got a creative team in house that's doing incredible work, and we want more bandwidth so we can test at scale, right? And so it doesn't make sense to go hire a second creative team for more people. Let's go find a creative team that can supplement them and we can give them direction and we can test at scale and then figure out what works for us and then hand that new creative approach off to our internal creative team. Yeah. Right. So every answer is, a, is it kind of depends. Right. And so uh, that's why I tried desperately to work with the agency I inherited first. I mean, I spent yeah. two or three months trying to work with them and figure out like what was working and what wasn't working. And there were a couple of decisions. It's like, you know what, the, clearly this is, I think I can do this better in house. Yeah. But I only because I had the experience and the contacts to be able to to back that up. Right? Yeah, record. Yeah, and <laughs> creative is a great example because mm -hmm. a lot of times, especially if you're looking for performance creative that yes. you're going to use on ad channels, it's actually very helpful. It's like uh, how like you know people hire outside financial firms to audit. It's actually really helpful to get like outside looks and, and fresh ideas and perspectives on on creators even if you already have an in-house team but another thing that you said a second ago with your serious experience that i want to like touch on and and really like you know when i'm saying hey here's the argument against the agency if i'm being real honest is you guys had a really major uh like dependency like you had a really big part of your business tied up in something like a, a key a key part of your business a yes. key, key like fuel for your business that like really drove a lot of your sales and profit that you had no in-house competency for. Yep. And that, yeah, that that's definitely a little bit of a vulnerability. So it's, you know, whether you in-house it or you bring in someone who specifically has the competency to be able to manage that agency, yep. know, hey, you know what, that's, they're not doing a good job. We need to move agencies, whatever. Um, I think that, you know, having something an in-house competency for something that's like a major driver in your business is pretty valuable. Yeah. The counter argument would have been hire that person who was the strategist and then work with the agency to get the account rebuilt five times faster. Like it took us almost a year to rebuild everything. 300,000 keywords don't organize themselves. No. <laughs> do not. They genuinely do not. 9,000. It took a long time to really think through like this is the strategy that we're going to that we're going to take with this approach right and it 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 took two people full time six I think it was six to nine months to get everything built yeah it's painful like and it's a lot of work for them and it's grunt work right and so the the counter argument is like direct the agency to go do that work you could have gotten it done way way faster right, right. yeah time, time is money yeah <laughs> every every month that account structure was not restructured was costing us that 40 percent yeah right? so like maybe we maybe we took a bad approach yeah maybe um but bringing in in-house competency was probably ultimately worth it and, and it works out right um mm -hmm. we learn and you see hey maybe next time that's what i would do i'd hire one person to manage right um <laughs> but cool so yeah i want to uh move on to like a little bit of a uh kind of a fun section here a little breakup um we we're big sport. Are you a sports guy at all? You like? Yeah, absolutely. Cool, cool, 
All right. Yeah, I, I should ask that up front. Everything. If there's a sport, I probably played it in high school or college. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Okay. So we're like, uh, we're big, big kind of like sports, you know, I'm big on sports analogies for business and, and what we've learned from them. Um, so like, you know, one of the time, one of my favorite ones. So, so like, uh, we're going to kind of ask you for, if you've got any great sports analogies for us that we can put mm-hmm. in the back pocket. Um, so like one of my, for example, one of my favorite ones is like, uh, schemes for teams, right? So like, I'm a, I'm a basketball fan. You're a Utah guy too. So I don't know if mm-hmm. you're also a jazz fan, like unto me, but, um, the, the, yeah, like you, you gotta in basketball, like, especially there's only five person teams, like you have to have the right scheme like a good coach can like switch the scheme up um to match his personnel or even match like different units on the floor right like his first unit might play a little differently than a second unit and stuff like that so schemes for teams it's it's true in business too right like you got you've got to like build your strategy for okay what are we hiring agencies for what are we gonna like actually execute on in-house for your your competencies um so yeah that's one of my favorite ones casey uh we'll give you a second to think casey what you got that you haven't already used before uh, sports analogy. Be yeah. Um, I think it's one I have, I can't remember what we have and have not used, but <laughs> one of my, one of my favorite ones is like, you know, the, I'm a big football fan, uh, 49ers in case you didn't notice, uh, hard to miss, but, uh, <laughs> one of my favorite things is kind of the running game kind of seems, uh, kind of boring to a lot of people, you know, um, but you got to kind of set up the big pass with the running game. So you don't always, sell uh, like have that big sale you know every week let's say sometimes it's like once a month sometimes it's once a quarter sometimes it's that black friday sale right uh but you kind of set people up you kind of let them know they see that regular pricing and then when that big sale hits that's that like deep pass you're trying to trying to make a big big you know that up and up and to the right right um so you're trying to make a big impact on one play or one specific time uh that's kind of my go-to in sports analogies yeah, the run sets up the pass. Gotcha. Yep. Sean, you got something for us? I do. Well, I'm a huge Steeler fan, so I'm sorry okay. uh, that I've got more Super Bowls than you do, Casey. Um, sorry, but, we, have, uh, we have more quarterbacks than you do right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. So back when you guys were about knee-high to a cornstalk, or actually before you were even born probably, we were winning Super Bowls, and the coach's name back then was a guy named Chuck Knoll. And uh, my favorite Chuck Knoll quote is that champions are champions not because – they do anything extraordinary, but because they do the ordinary things better than anyone else. So it's yeah. about blocking and tackling and just handling your business. Take care of the grunt work. Like I, I, my general perception is if, if there was a marketing channel that was free, cheap, and easy, you're probably already doing it, right? But executing that stuff really well and flawlessly and seeing the opportunity when it presents itself is really, really important. Yeah. The other thing is I, I've used this analogy all the time. Just I, I believe in the best athlete approach. Like the whole notion of a full service digital agency is just bullshit to me. Like there are people that claim those things. You're really good at one or two things probably. And it's usually related to the founder, right? The founder is the, the larger than life persona who grew up. I use my friend, um, you know, Ian, who was an SEO genius before most people were another former lawyer. Um, you know, he, he, he built the portent agency up in Seattle to 30 some odd people in his image and while they did a lot of other things, they were known for being an SEO firm, right? Like that was their strength. That was, the, that was when they were, that was the, they, they couldn't go left as well as they could go right on the yeah. floor. Right. Yeah. You got okay. a dominant hand and you need to figure like out it. what that is. So no, I, I like missed that. like five different sports metaphors. I'm no, sorry. that was about, I love you can go left. Is, that's a good one. 
like I can't I turn left. I like the basketball. And the I'm more gonna mix the metaphors. <laughs> the more mix the metaphors get, the more we like it. Honestly, there you go. Yeah, yeah, more and more sports. I actually have a question here now too. Uh, we kind of almost went down the creative lane for a second there, uh, yeah. kind of from like the brand identity uh, intersection there, and I think those two are pretty related. Brand identity to creative, uh, because you know your creative is what you're kind of featuring, what you're selling to the customers, and that is just connected to your brand identity. So yeah. when I go to Kuru, I see obviously one of the main, the main mission is to eliminate foot pain. Right. Mm -hmm. But also we know that it matters what your shoes look like, right? Yep. Some brands, that's all that matters. They aren't trying to eliminate foot pain at all. So can you speak a little bit around maybe even product development of new products or especially the marketing is what I'm interested in between that balance of eliminating foot pain, but also like, Hey, we're not you know, we, we have styles that we, we we're standing behind too, that you're going to enjoy wearing our shoes. They aren't going to look like your, you know, typical, you know, regular shoe that could help. Eliminate like, yeah. That message across. Yeah. <clears throat> and and I, I should mention, like, uh, we just had a, another brand on, uh, they had a similar thing where they're a very healthy snack company, but they also taste great. So yeah. very similar kind of balance. Yeah. I, I will say we're figuring that out on the fly. Like we're, um, it's a great call out and it's a hundred percent, not where we want it to be today. Um, the I'm, I, I'm, I'm very much a generalist and, and I'm trying to inspire, I hate the word inspire, but I'm trying to inspire the marketing team to go do incredible work and trying to stay the heck out of their way. Like my, um, we joke between the CEO and I, like neither one of us is a creative. Like I'm, I, I, <clears throat> I have what I, I suffer from what I call like functional marketing brain, right? Like if it was up to me, I would, I would have every single person that lands on our site. I would have a giant pop-up that says stylish shoes for foot pain. And I would have, and the way I would communicate is that is like a Venn diagram, stylish shoes that usually cause foot pain and, and actually don't help with foot pain. And then there's foot pain shoes that usually look really awful. And like when those two things intersect, that little sliver of the intersection in the Venn diagram, that's where Kuru lives there. Like I actually kind of like that. Is that's us, <laughs> Let's see at least that. aspirationally, right? Like some of our styles are not very stylish and stylish is a very subjective thing. And so uh, that to me is the category that we inhabit. And my functional brain goes right to, if I could have the whole country connect silo shoes with foot pain with Kuru footwear, I'd be a happy camper. Like that would get us 70% of where I'd like us to be. And mm -hmm. the remaining 30% is really what you're asking. I think Casey, which is like, what's the look tone and feel and what's the aspirational piece. And is it, is, does lifestyle imagery work better than close-up photography? Like where, where do you strike that balance and where do those tensions live? And the answer is, I can't tell you today. Like all I know is that a year from now we will look dramatically different and hopefully that will convert an even higher percentage of the customers that hit the site. And it will be a scientifically data-driven CRO exercise that will push us in that direction. Yeah. So we're, I think, as, we, as you guys know, we are in the process. We just kicked off a project to migrate from Magento to Shopify. And that project four months from now, we will be on Shopify, but we'll be on Shopify with our current look, tone and feel. And then it's an immediate fast follow phase too of like, okay, let's go test the heck out of this thing and really push the envelope on terms of what our PDP pages should look like and what the imagery that we want to convey looks like. And so we'll be testing dramatically, I'm sure for the next 24 months, let's call it. And between that and working with that creative agency I mentioned, I think we'll come out the other side looking and feeling pretty, pretty different.
That's very yeah. interesting, right? As a numbers guy, especially when you go thinking about messaging you want to convey between stylish and, and solving foot pain, <clears throat> you go, well, we'll show it to me in a graph or a diagram, right? Like that's, that, I find that funny. Uh, Cause not everybody sees it that way, right? Not everybody can, can have that. I, it's funny when I got here, the, the whole foot pain messaging, as I mentioned, was kind of missing from the site. And, and the, 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 the running joke between me and the CEO is like, I want to slap everyone that visits our website with a wet fish and scream, we solve foot pain. Like that to me is my version of Nirvana is it's got to be immediate. It's got to be compelling. And, and like the five-year marketing plan from my perspective is I want every American, when they think of foot pain, to think of Dr. Scholl's and crew footwear. Yeah. Like we're in step one half of that journey and it's going to be a lot of money and a lot of time yeah. and a lot of effort and trying to figure all that stuff out. But I'm convinced that if that connection is made initially, all of the rest of our digital marketing ecosystem will change yeah. and change for the betterment on behalf of the brand, right? You'll see better click-through rates and lower CPCs and higher conversion rates and more personal referrals and references and everything gets better, but it takes a lot of time and effort to spend at that level to make that, to draw those connection points that's, you know, we equal stylish shoes for foot pain. I, I, I think this is... Back to what you said about having like the right people in the right <clears throat> position to, because yeah. you're really good at one or two things, right? And as you have uh, creative people focusing on that stuff, I think I think it'll really evolve for you as you're as you're focusing yeah. on that. Um, yeah, but oh man, I almost forgot what I was gonna say here. <laughs> oh, yeah. um, this is why I I'm the have... behind the scenes guy pushing the buttons usually. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I actually had yeah something I just want to say, and then and we can wrap up because uh, uh, I have just a couple more questions for sure. you. But, yeah. But like yeah, one of the things. So I love that what you like big key point. You know, especially for anyone listening this deep trying to figure out like, you know, how, what is it that they're doing different? You know, that is, is bringing them success, right? We talked about media mix, and I'm not saying that you know a heavy. Google is the right media mix for everybody. We talked about in-housing. It's not right for everybody. But like what you just said, like the mindset that you, so there's a couple key points you've made here. The mindset of how you think about attribution mm -hmm. and the mindset that you just said of like, the numbers are going to drive your messaging, right? Like the data is going to drive your messaging. So like background on, on, on Casey, myself and like the structured agency and where we, we actually got acquired by the structured agency, but we, where we came from before that, I would say our right hand, like, are going right dominant, is, yeah. is performance creative, right? Sure. Like creative that will drive conversions. Like I said, I'm like an interruptive guy, right? Um, and that, like Casey said something last week that I was like, dude, I'm gonna tweet that. Like that was amazing. <laughs> so he goes, he goes, a lot of brands want to decide what their identity is and then try and work their creative around that and their imagery and messaging around that mm -hmm. instead of letting the performance drive the brand identity because that's what's allowing you to say like hey what do you like what do you guys like what what is it that you want our customers what is it yep. that you really want and that is actually our brand identity and uh so the fact that you're doing this with a, a numbers driven approach is yeah that this is the right approach to creative and and i just want to i want to hit on that because the few things that i think are big keys for for careers like yeah i mean there's some tactical stuff but it's that my it's the mindset stuff right the mindset stuff around being like masters of a channel and saying hey we're really good at google how do we how do we scale up google and go higher funnel there we yeah. here's how we have the right mindset about creative here's how we have the right mindset about attribution so that's that's what i'm going to call out and say like you know mindset around key 
elements has been the, the real hinge that swung the door for you guys. Yeah, the thing that's really like, that's going to take us to the next level. And I think a, a big part that shouldn't be underestimated of what's gotten us this far is we are passionately um, in love with understanding our customers, right? Yeah, and so right. like, it's a very much a customer centric model. Uh, we believe in the jobs to be done methodology from a product development perspective. And so we're constantly probably over interviewing our customers. Like mm -hmm. we survey them to death, um, but the data we get back is super, super valuable. Um, we ask customers at the point of purchase, if you were to go and buy a pair of our men's Adams, for example, today, we hit you with a couple of quick post-purchase surveys, one of which is like the usual post-purchase, how'd you hear about us, right? It's uh, it's that no commerce kind of approach of like, hey, you know, we're trying to we're trying to do a little bit of channel attribution there. Yeah. But, the, but the quick follow-up is, hey, you told us you're buying the Adams today. What are you buying them for? Mm -hmm. um, what what is your intended use? Did you buy them to satisfy a specific body ache or pain? Please check all that apply. Mm -hmm. So now we get to understand what our customers are buying the men's Adam to do. Yeah. And we get to feed that data back to our product team. Like yeah. that level of insight is invaluable, right? Like, um, and then we ask, what are you planning to use it for? Are you going to use it for, you know, walking for mild exercise, for heavy exercise, for, or are, 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 will you wear it at work? If so, what is your, what is your, the job that you do for a yeah. living? Right. So we can then, you communicate back to customers, hey, X percent of people who bought the men's quantum or the women's stride bought it for this purpose, right? Um, like the, the stride is a really good example. It's a it's a, a somewhat loose fitting, um, stretchy knit upper, very lightweight shoe that we built, we built for women. Mm -hmm. Come to find out when you, when you read a lot of the reviews, there's a healthy percentage of customers that were buying that as a house shoe alternative to a pair of slippers. Because it's just, it's the first thing they slide on. They keep it right next to their bed. And it's super lightweight. It's very breathable. It's super comfortable. And we didn't build it for that purpose. So understanding the off-label usage or the intended, you know, people are buying it to use it in a way that uh, it doesn't connect with why we originally built the shoe, right? And yeah. so I think staying really closely connected to our customers to understand all those use cases it's incredibly invaluable. Yes. And, and the same thing goes for as we start pushing up the funnel in our marketing and we move from demand capture to demand gen, like understanding those customer bases in those segments and saying, okay, we're going to go target nurses. Awesome. What is the messaging that's going to resonate with them? Where do we go find those people? What's the spend level need to look like? How many times, what's the frequency that we need to hit them with this message? How do we build ourselves into a preference brand among the nursing and the, and the healthcare community? Yeah, yeah. What, figure that out and then replicate that, that playbook for warehouse workers and delivery drivers and <laughs> retail workers and teachers and, and you know, people that are on their feet all day need what we offer, right? And so Absolutely. there's an incredible opportunity to learn from all those different customer segments. I've, I've got uh, another sports metaphor for us here because just a second ago, I, I fumbled the ball, right? But, <laughs> John and I have been on a team for long enough now to where he picked it up and ran it for a first down because uh, that's exactly where I was going to go when I put my foot in my mouth is that you, you didn't just decide on a brand identity uh, subjectively. You're going through the right process of you know why people are buying your shoes. You're building your brand identity through performance uh, and you're, you're thinking through different avatars. So even, the, even though you're not maybe the most creatively minded person, you guys are figuring out how to lead your creative team through valuable information, which is just yeah. personally, like even objectively, I think it's really the right way to do it. 
it's yeah. a lot of fun. Yeah, for it, sure. It, yeah, I mean, look, if you, if, if you want to grow and be bootstrapped and have a good, I mean, even if you're not bootstrapped, if you want to grow and have profit, like, yeah, that's yeah. probably the right way to do it. If you like learning new things, this is an incredible environment. Like, uh -huh. you will never not be learning something at Kuru. Yeah, sure. As a marketer, as a product person, every yeah. day we open our eyes and go, whoa, like that. We didn't know that yesterday. Yeah. This is really cool, you know? Okay, I got, I got one more kind of question for you. Um, and, and kind of thinking... Maybe a little tactically here, a little less high level. Um, right now, sort of Q2 2022, um, I want to know, you know, for Kuru Footwear, like what's working really well for you guys, you know, from a marketing and growth perspective and, and what's a little, and what is a little bit of a struggle at the moment? And maybe we've covered some of it, but, you know, just kind of give you a little bit of a way to tie those things up and above. Yeah. The, uh, the thing that's working really well for us is our email channel. And I've talked about this before on Twitter and it, it runs afoul of every best practice that every you know email genius and every and every consumer is like oh you, why would you do that so um when i got here we were sending three emails a week and we had a pretty good cadence of like we're going to do that monday wednesday and friday and you know, the idiot walks into the room and goes well, if it's working three days a week what if we tried five days a week yeah let's give it a shot and we'll see what happens <laughs> and so we send out for the most part um five days a week and there are you know when we're really pushing for volume we'll do two emails in a day a couple of days or we're, we're, we're testing day of week delivery and a few other things but we've more than doubled revenue in the email channel by sending five days a week. And we as consumers go, that sounds awful. I would unsubscribe in a minute. And there's a lot of truth to that. But what we, uh, as you can imagine, the KPIs that we track for that, or we look at subscriber rate and unsubscriber rate. And we've grown the list, you know, 50% in the last two and a half years. Um, so we've actually captured more emails on the way in the door than we ever did before. And the unsubscriber rate is almost identical to when we were sending three days a week. So why wouldn't you do more of that? Right. Um, and, and it's, and it's not even as like flowery and, and kind of awesome as I'd like that email channel to be. It's very, again, like, um, transactional marketing related. Oh, here's a new color that just hit the site or this color, this style is going away. I want you to know that because if this is your favorite, the last thing I want is for you to be mad at us as a brand that we didn't tell you that it was going away and you can come back and buy two more pair because it's your favorite shoe ever. Like the, that type of like very transactional communication is awesome and customers love it. And so they will suffer through a lot of frequency if they know you have their best interests at heart. Right. That, and, right. Yeah. I mean, and it, you have to have a reason. Yeah. Like you can't just keep saying the same thing five days a week. Yeah. Right? If you've got a reason, hey, there's a new color. This is going out or we're low on inventory in this. We might not have it for another month. Here's our limited editions. We It's a one purchase and done and they're going to go away when they're gone. So get them all you can. That's the one that we hit about every two weeks and it crushes because we've that's a that's a structural thing that I introduced when I came in. So we think about our styles and four and color combinations in kind of three different ways. We say these are core colors that we, you know, our women's black Adam is one of our best selling shoes. We want to never be out of a size on that. If we can, if we can avoid it. Right. Then we have a, a group that's kind of provisional that we say, this is a new color. We're not sure if it's going to make it to the core and it could be something we discontinue. We discontinued a provisional color yesterday. We said, we're not going to buy this again. It's not performing the way we'd like it to. Okay, mm -hmm. like let's internalize that learning and make sure we're communicating it back to the product team and, and you know, be yeah. a little bit sensitive to potentially launching a different style in that, in that similar colorway. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's these limited editions that are more the usually the bigger color pops, the brighter colors. We know that we're going to buy one 
minimum order quantity of that and it's going to drop and it's we're going to buy about as much as we think should last six months and if there's anything left in inventory it's that six month time frame it goes into our clearance center and it gets 10 percent off and we want to move it out of the out of the warehouse as quickly as we can right um the thing that's not working as we'd like it to is frankly some of the paid channels you know there's we're um we're constantly testing some of the, some new approach and um you know it's uh it's 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 been the last couple of weeks has been a little bit tough and in part because you're comping against march and april of last year it's like you know overall our conversion rates are very similar but that demand is different and we're trying to figure out where that fits and how do we push it to a certain point so we're really managing aggressively on our spend levels and sometimes there's some volatility in that channel right it takes yeah. a lot of, of pro and we've got an incredible team they are all all over it and they are really super proactive about it and i love the work that they're doing and it's a bit of a challenge based on where we thought we would be in that specific channel right now in this moment, right? But it's been a huge part of our growth story over the last two years, and it'll continue to be uh, one for the future as well. Yeah, amazing. Well, Sean, it has been good, so good to have you on the on the show. Um, we'll wrap up, and so what we do in the wrap up is uh, is we do a parting shot, and uh, it's just kind of like over the course of this conversation that we've had a lot of times. But you know, the reason I do the podcast, honestly, is so that I can meet cool people like you and learn things and uh, and just like have thoughts triggered. Um, and I'm giving you a little bit of time to think here. Uh, we usually allow our guests to to give the parting shot of like, hey, look, you know, the TLDR version of of this episode if, if you're coming here to learn something about you know growing a brand or, or uh, weathering tough times is is this so yeah we'll, we'll give you the floor for the parting shot here well so my my opinion is um uh, when it comes to the parting shot is there's more than one way to grow a d2c brand right find what works for you and we're an example of you know when most other d2c brands have been growing on the backs of paid social and instagram and facebook we were growing on the back of google and and microsoft and email right and so um find what works and i think the email channel is another good example right a lot of people would say oh, that's not best practice find what works for your brand test everything assume everything can be broken and and you know build it back up as you go you will find what works for you if you take a scientific approach to it and you just make make no assumptions and test everything yeah, that's my advice. Amazing. Well, Sean, Sean, it's been good to have you. Casey, I'll leave the floor to you to, to say all the YouTube things that people are. Maybe. Oh, sorry, a little cut out there. No a little cut out. Yeah, we're back. We're good. Uh, yeah, thank you, Sean, for joining us. Thank you, John, as always, for joining me. Modern Commerce, thank you for joining us and listening this far into the episode. I assume if you listened this far and you liked it, so go ahead and smash that like button. Go ahead and uh, subscribe to the channel and hit the bell icon to get notifications about whenever we drop new content on the channel. And as always, until next time, we'll see you.